This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Other End of the Stethoscope, The Physician's Perspective on the Healthcare Crisis, and the author is Dr. Deanna Reed. And Dr. Reed joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Deanna. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, this is not going to be just focused on the problems. You've got a lot of suggestions, recommendations, solutions, if you will, and we'll get to those. But first of all, let's uh, talk about what you have written a little bit just to kind of set the stage in general for everyone. You say, do you think physicians have it made when you get sick and need a doctor in the middle of the night? Do you take for granted that doctors will always be available to care for you? Most people are aware that there is a health care crisis in America. However, few have examined the crisis from a physician's point of view. And that's your purpose in writing your book, to inform and educate people about the life of a doctor. Of course, the rigorous training involved in the daily routine of medical practice and the difficulties of reconciling the business of medicine with the ultimate goal of healing. So a rather well, beyond uh, complex, it's, it's obviously many faceted here, and you're, from all your years as a doctor, you have a unique viewpoint. Tell us about your, your uh, past uh, medical experience, Dr. Deanna. All right. When I uh, was a teenager, I lost my father to lung cancer, and it triggered an interest in me in uh, healing and health. At the time, I was pretty angry at the traditional medical uh, system for not being able to save my father from lung cancer. And I, I went off into studying herbs and nutrition and alternate health care. But the more I got into that, I realized that there were really sick people out there and that massage and these alternate health care systems were not enough to take care of people who were really ill. So I chose to go for pre-med and uh, became a, a pre-med student and after two attempts, was accepted into medical school, and uh, then uh, the more I learned, the, the more I realized I needed to know, and uh, my life goal was learning and sharing that knowledge with other people. So I ended up in neurology, um, the medical side of brain doctoring, not a surgeon, but uh, we treat uh, diseases like headache stroke, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and uh, nerve damage from various problems, from carpal tunnel syndrome to spine problems. It was a very rewarding profession in many ways, uh, spiritually rewarding, (laughs) Um, although I uh, had my career cut short due to an accident, an illness. I uh, carried with me many of the issues that uh, that I find are, are troubling our country right now. And I finally have time now as being disabled to to write and reflect on what my medical life uh, entailed, and also to follow up on it the the issues of how we can fix our broken health care system. So um, I uh, have been working on this book for eight years, uh, and, of course, it's had many revisions along with many of the changes that have occurred in health care in the last several years. So I talk a bit about the uh, Obama's ACA, PPACA health care plan, and how physicians are reacting to that. 
and what what the consequences of it will be. Well, it's certainly in the news a lot, and it's probably going to be more with the election upon us and all the campaigning. Of what's the extent in this country? How many are uninsured? There are now over fifty-three million people uninsured, and I was one of them <laughs> when I mm. when I became disabled. Uh, there was no special consideration for the fact that I'd given my life to healthcare and medicine. I was thrown under the bus along with everybody else. If you can't work, you can't get healthcare. And uh, I. When my Cobra ran out, which was barely affordable, using up my savings for it, as many people have, the uh, insurance company was required to offer me some kind of health insurance for me and my family, which would have cost four, over $4,000 a month just for the premium, hmm. not to mention the deductible and co-pays and all the other costs. So uh, I, uh, I I would say that not only is there are there 53 million people who are uninsured, but out of these people who even have are who are underinsured, the costs of health care have gone to astronomical levels, and they end up without access. They end up not going to the doctor when they need to because of the costs. Uh, older people don't go because they don't want to leave a leave a big financial burden for their children to pay for uh, in the last years of their lives. And uh, it's a tragedy. Not only are, are all these people suffering and worrying about health care and knowing that one injury or illness could bankrupt them, but uh, many people are dying. And the average had been 45,000 people per year uh, in the last few years who have died literally because they could not get health care or could, you know, didn't go when they had a preventable condition, but only finally when they were near death. So something's got to change. We've got to change the system. Uh, the private health care system is literally is killing our patients and our profession. And why is that? Well, uh, as I say, the patients are dying because they can't access health care. Right, but why, why is the, what's the underlying cause that the private system isn't working? I mean, I know we've, you know, there's, a, everyone's pointing fingers at each other, uh, but uh, you focus on there's there's a real problem today just with greed. Corporate greed. That's exactly what I was going to say. Corporate greed and for-profit health care is simply untenable. The whole goal of a corporation is to make money. That's their prime directive. And... Taking care of people, health care, is a secondary uh, necessary evil. So the less they do for patients and for doctors, the more money they make. And what they call administrative costs in our, out of our health care dollar are, in, are approximately 31%. Contrast that to Medicare or the VA systems, which are government health care, whose overhead administrative costs and overhead run 3 to 4%. So there's where a lot of the money's going. Mm -hmm. It's going into the pockets of CEOs. Um, $15 million salaries plus stock benefits and, all the, and, and, and other benefits that can lead into the hundreds of millions of dollars for a handful of people to oversee the healthcare system and these are not people who are medically literate they're not mm. they're not doctors they're not even healthcare professionals of any sort they're simply businessmen so that's a big issue uh, 
also the um, the amount of variety. One of the one of the things that uh, well, let me go back. One of the other costs costs of of the healthcare crisis involves the legal system. Lawyers have made the practice of medicine almost impossible. Not only are there so many regulations on physicians these days, uh, but also uh, physicians have started practicing defensive medicine. It's been going on for probably 10 years, but it has gotten consistently worse and worse and worse. There are so many frivolous lawsuits and so much risk to a physician of having a lawsuit against them. One lawsuit can truly ruin the career of a physician. Uh, It can make it impossible for them to get hospital privileges. If they should move, it'll make it uh, double, triple, or quadruple their malpractice insurance that they pay. Um, And it does a has a psychological damage that's hard to measure in money, but uh, causes a physician to practice defensive medicine. And many people might not know what defensive medicine is, but essentially it is practicing medicine to avoid a lawsuit rather than to provide for the health of the patient. Uh, making decisions based on the fear of liability rather than the patient's well-being. And this has come about for many factors, but uh, it's come to the point where there is mistrust on both ends of the stethoscope. Patients no longer trust their doctors, and doctors no longer trust their patients. They start seeing every patient as a potential lawsuit. They're going to practice differently. I've done it, and 90% of the doctors in the country have been surveyed and reported doing the same thing. I it's a matter to, of survival. Right. I want to just mention uh, some of your chapter headings here and then get some of the time we have left to get some of your solutions Uh you hear the chapter headings, a career in medicine, the practice of medicine, the business of medicine, liability in medicine, the doctor is patient, the future of medicine, a physician's perspective. Uh, so the future of medicine, uh, give us some of your, just some thoughts. We have about uh, three minutes left. Uh, give us some thoughts on the solution. Is the single-payer system, is that the answer? Well, I think so. Uh, There is a bill in Congress, H.R. 676, put forth by Representative John Conyers and supported by Senator Bernie Sanders that would replace the the current health care plan with a national health care program that would be paid for through our taxes as a progressive tax and similar to what we are already paying. It would be an an expanded Medicare for All program, which means that you pay through your taxes, but you don't pay a copay, you don't pay a deductible. When you go to, need to go to the doctor, you just go. And this is what most industrialized countries in the world have done. Uh, they pay less for health care than we do, and they get the, all their citizens covered equally and uh, I think it's uh, it, it's an important piece. Now, there's also the malpractice uh, insurance. I mean, malpractice piece of that puzzle that needs to be fixed. Doctors need to stop having to look over their shoulder all the time when they're trying to work. When they're trying to do provide the best care for their patients, they don't need to be worrying about this uh, constant fear of being sued. My idea is for a malpractice, national malpractice slash complications fund. And what that would do would be to uh, provide a workers' comp-like 
program that would be run by physicians, supervised by physicians. And if a malpractice uh, event occurs, patients would be compensated through this program and doctors would, the centerpiece would be a retraining, an educational program that would take physicians that fall out of the standard of practice to be uh, retrained, specific coursework assigned to them through the, your specialty society, and so perhaps supervision by an, uh, another physician or a physician board. This would take a lot of money out of the lawyer's hands, which right now is estimated at about $30 billion of our health care dollars. And that money could go back into health care, providing real care. Dr. Reed, you're in favor of the Occupy movement. Yes, I am. I'm actually a member of the Occupy movement, although I was unable to sleep out there with everybody. My, my, when I, sorry, when I finished this book, I found a group of people who felt as I did, physicians for a national health care program. They, in turn, allied themselves with the Occupy movement because we were all looking at the same issue, corporate greed, which was killing our country and killing, from a medical standpoint, our patients and our profession. When I uh, came back from my uh, from the annual convention, I went out and joined Occupy Nashville, as many of the other physicians were doing with their local Occupy groups. We ended up not only protesting for national health care, but also providing a medical presence to these Occupy movements, setting up medical first aid tents and providing food and health care as much as we could to the people out there in the Occupy movement. It was a great experience and really brought home the issues of the desperate need that the veterans out there, that the mentally ill out there, and that the poor and unable were, were suffering from. Well, your book is very comprehensive, Doctor. You've addressed a, a lot of different aspects of the medical field and, the, of course, the insurance field and, and the government uh, proposed program. Uh, the title of the book, The Other End of the Stethoscope, The Physician's Perspective on the Healthcare Crisis, Dr. Deanna Reed has been talking to us. Uh, Dr. Reed, tell us how to get your book. Uh, my book is available on uh, at uh, the Author House website. It is also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble websites. Uh, and so, uh, it also, I have a website at Authors Express, uh, Deanna Reed Authors Express. Uh, which in which I post some blogs and try, attempt to humanize healthcare. I I want to leave you with one uh, comment, and that is sure. that healthcare uh, is a life or death situation for individuals. It should not be a business decision. Right now, we that's what we have. What what we need to have is doctors and patients renewing and strengthening their relationship and working together to make the changes that we need in this country. Dr. Reed, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. 
And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, A Farewell Platform to the Queen of Talk. True Aha! Moments of Divine Order. And the author is Kimberly Adams. And Kim joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kim. Hello, how are you? This is going to be a fascinating journey because of the way you and Oprah Winfrey uh, just kind of crossed paths. It was a change of life for you, and we'll get into what happened there. It deals with your pursuit of a true calling, which Oprah advocated on her show. So let me read what you've written. You say, this mini novel tells the true life story of how singer songwriter Kimberly Adams had a aha moment experience and began to act on it in pursuit of her true calling. After doing the unthinkable, she realizes another unknown true calling to pay homage to the Queen of Talk, talk show host Oprah Winfrey. Celebrating the Queen and bidding her farewell, Kimberly gains a platform that gives her much more than she has expected or could have ever asked for. Fascinating, uh, I guess, moment in time, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Kim, tell us about yourself. Now, we already mentioned singer-songwriter, but tell, tell us about what your experiences have been that led up to this aha moment. <laughs> As you know, as I stated, I'm a singer-songwriter, and I've uh, been singing for several years, uh, back up some uh, professional uh, celebrities as well as local um, I had been singing for so long and, and you know, began to, uh, I guess, get a little weary with it because I guess things weren't moving as fast as I thought it should or or, or maybe I wasn't farther along than I thought I should be. Uh, and then I began to, I don't know, kind of get down on myself um, about, uh, you know, not having that singing career, I guess, if you will. <laughs> Uh, of course, I'm singing all the time, you know, been singing in church all my life since I was seven years old, so that's when I started singing at the age of seven, and uh, wrote some songs and uh, recorded, like I say, back up, did a lot of things in the past, plays, uh, film, television, you name it. So, um, you know, like I said, I got some competitions, and I won some and I lost some, but uh, I just felt like I should have been further along. And I got, you know, like I said, kind of down on myself, thought maybe, oh, maybe I'm getting a little too older, you know, too much, not older, but, you know, a little old for the this particular uh, industry, uh, because it does play a part, play a big part uh, as far as age. But uh, I kind of put things on hold. Um, you know, uh, my passion wasn't there anymore like it should have been, and uh, it kind of led up to this aha moment. Uh, it just kind of came about 
uh, you know, reading Oprah's 2011 November issue of O magazine, and I stumbled on an article about true callings. Um, this is you know, how it all came to play. Uh, just kind of like I don't know, the words was just jump out, jump out, of, out at me. Basically, um, it was just kind of for me. Um, I uh, began to read and was thinking to myself, I didn't see this before, you know, because I had the magazine, you know, months before, and I just was kind of going back through it again. And that's when I saw it. So I uh, started to weep and cry and just couldn't stop crying. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is, you know, aha moment, basically, you know. And I was just, uh, you know, wanting to, uh, that passion, I could just feel it all, like, just, like, coming back as I was reading, like, this is where I was supposed to be. It just felt like home. It's just it's so much me and this. And reading what she was saying as far as, you know, following following your true calling and becoming who you were supposed to be and, you know, not letting things hold you back and letting go of uh, hang-ups or what have you. Um, maybe not in those exact words, but uh, that's basically what it was. And then uh, I just, you know, had this idea, you know, I'm going to act on it in, in some way or, or form. I'm going to act on it and just, you know, begin to try to make, you know, my dream come true of, singing I was wanting to sing uh, for the Oprah show so I was trying to sing on her show pretty much and she was uh, uh, you know getting ready for her farewell season of course and so I said well if I'm going to try to do anything I better try now because you know uh, she's leaving soon and I really you know wanted to sing on her show for so many years you know um, I've been telling my kids I would sing on her show and I uh, just never, I just thought I had time. I guess that's what it was. I, oh, she'll always, for some reason in my mind, she'll always be there. <laughs> um, so it just kind of hit me like, oh, my God, you know, she's not going to be here anymore in Chicago. She's kind of like one of the, uh, if not the biggest talk show host in Chicago. You know, we had her right here. You know, how come I didn't do anything all these years? How come, how come I let all these years pass? So uh, that's when I began, to, you know, to act on it and just kind of move forward and just let it happen. Whatever happens, I'm going to try to push push uh, my singing career and just kind of, um, you know, get out there and just do the unthinkable, which was what I thought of doing. Is, uh, you know, it came to mind, uh, you know, get her attention some kind of way. So I'm going to think of something, a way to get her attention or her producer's attention, which led me to going out there with my sign, this humongous, <laughs> big, crazy-looking sign, and, you know, thinking to myself, oh, my God, what am I doing? After I got into it, of course, I was, you know, trying to maybe go back. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should, you know, go back somewhere and go home or whatever. But uh, I'm glad I stayed, actually. Uh, it turned into be something really great and something really big, and I'm just kind of glad that I went on a date because, um, after doing that in, in, in terms of me trying to pursue my true calling, I wound up thinking of, you know, why don't I pay homage to her? You know, she's leaving us. We won't have another Oprah. She's going to be gone. This is it. I need to do something nice for her. It just kind of was something that I felt compelled to do. Um, and I wanted to, uh, you know, I couldn't give her a gift or money or anything like that. You know, who am I to give her something? So I said, well, let me give her something to show what she meant to me in Chicago, you know, um, you know, hopefully everybody feels the same. So I just kind of start celebrating her and just, uh, you know, wanting to do something, you know, because she was just leaving. It was like nobody else was there, nobody else was doing it. So it was just like basically my calling to do this. It was just like for me to be there at that present place and time to pay homage to her, and that's what I began to do. And I think you know, I vowed to be there every day um, until her farewell season, just to paying homage to her and just celebrating her for her 25 years here in Chicago. And what was so amazing about that experience is that because you were there every day, you got to meet so many people. Yes. Oh, my God. I got to meet so many people from around the world. It began uh, with people from Italy, people from Africa, people from Australia. I mean, they just came from around the world. And it wasn't um, necessarily that they were going to a show. A lot of them were just trying to meet Oprah. They just wanted to say something to her, just kind of wanted to see her maybe, get a glimpse of her. You know, this is her farewell season, so I guess they felt kind of the same way I did. You know, this is my last chance to, you know, meet her or say something to her or, you know, uh, if nothing, just say hello. But uh, many of them never got a, got that chance. Some of them were there for shows and then some were not. So they got a chance to talk to me outside. <laughs> you know, of course, I'm no competition with Oprah. I'm not nowhere near Oprah, but 
it felt good. I was flattered, actually, to uh, be there for the people and just kind of be someone, a fixture there. They they came up, they talked to me, uh, hold me long conversations, you know, talked to me on a daily basis about, you know, Oprah and what she meant to them and uh, why was I there, you know, was she paying me? I mean, all these questions were, and I'm like, no, no, she was never paying me. It's just something, I, it's my gift to her. It wasn't. Uh, anything planned, it just happened, and, and that's all how it was. It was just a divine order, which is what my book states. These people came out here, and they, you know, saw me, and they said, well, you know, saw what I was there my, and what re- the reason I was there and what I was all about, and they, you know, wanted to take pictures after, you know, let me take a picture with you, and um, can you say something on my phone, you know, because they, you know, had nothing. They just wanted something, some type of memory of Oprah, and this was all they had, so you know, which was me, and it was great. It felt great. So this divine order, uh, this uh, true calling, uh, opened yes. doors for you to write this book. You've recorded an album. Well, I'm ready. Uh, that's coming next. The album coming will be next. recorded. Yeah, the album will be coming. You know, after the book. Um, Fantastic. Yes. So you're you're fulfilling your dreams. Yes, I am. Absolutely. <laughs> And uh, this is something I've always wanted to do. And I think, you know, had I not, you know, had that uh, desire and that passion so long ago and wanting this singing career so badly, I wouldn't have never had really the aha moment and wouldn't have never had these ideas of even going out here trying to do this or, or any of this probably wouldn't have came about. So it was kind of just, you know, open doors for me to gain that passion back and just follow my dream that I've always wanted to follow, you know, and just, you know, do it and, you know, not talk about it for the rest of my life, you know, so. You have to act on, you have to act exactly. on these, on these aha moments. We have to exactly. take, it, take action. It yes, exactly. And that's exactly what what I did. It took action and. You know, no matter how crazy it sounds or ridiculous, I'm going to do something, you know. And that, that was my thought, you know, not thinking it would turn into anything else. I was just, I'm just going to do something. I don't care what, you know, just something. So the first thing that came to mind was to do that with the sign and all that, and then other things came later. You know, the good things came out of it later. But, yeah, you have to act on it because you would go an entire life um, filling this void. It will just be a void that that's there and you don't know sometimes what it is. I know you have people who are with me, uh, you know, had several jobs. You know, I've always worked for many, many years for in you know, one company, you know, for many years. And, you know, any particular job I've had, you know, I was always there a long time. But I never felt like it was my place. I've always felt a big void, like something's wrong, something's missing. This is so not me. This, is, this office is not me. It's just always felt like something was not right. And I know what it is. It was just the calling and just my passion that I've always had as a creative artist and as a singer, songwriter. And that's hard when you have to make a living, so you have to work, you know. So that was the thing. Um, just wasn't doing what I love to do. And, and you're going to always have that void. And, and you're going to be kicking yourself if you don't just do something. I don't care what. Do something, you know, just because you just never know where your journey would take you. You just do not know. So you have to act on it in some type of way and watch and wait and see what happens. Well, a lot of people are either fearful and, yes. uh, you know, I can do that later. They use that as, I guess, uh, an excuse. Yes. But you're just saying act on it because it's never too late to follow your dreams and exactly. always follow your heart. Exactly. And, yes, that's exactly what I say in my book. You know, uh, you know, you have to follow. You have to follow all that because you will, oh, gosh, for me, I was just—I won't say—it became. I wasn't depressed, but it became depression because I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy with uh, going somewhere every day that I just was not me. And um, I know, like I said, you have to work. You have to do what you have to do, you know, in in life. But uh, as far as your true calling and, and who you really, really meant to be, you, it's going to keep coming. It's going to keep pulling at you pretty much. You, you just not, I, I don't think you just be complete. You're not completed until, because it's going to keep nagging at you. It's going to keep, something It's going to keep pulling at you, like do this, do this, do this, and you keep putting it off. You need to let go of, your, of, of the fears because that's a lot of people's problem, and that was mine, you know, first and foremost, not being bold enough to be or crazy enough. 
<laughs> if you will, to, to think that something might happen if I do this or let me try this and see what happens. People are afraid of that. People are afraid of being called crazy. People are afraid of being called something's wrong with her or uh, did you see her or being talked about or, or what family, even what family or friends uh, are going to say. You know, girl, are you crazy? And this, that, and that. I had to let go of all of that because I had those same thoughts. You know, what is this person going to say about me? What is my family going to say about me? What, are, you know, my kids. You know, so it it just became a thing where I just didn't even care. It was just that moment and that time. I didn't care what anybody said or <laughs> called me crazy or whatever. I was just gonna let it happen. Let whatever happened happen. So and and it's just something that I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to be a singer. So. This was the thing for me to uh, to uh, not. I went a lifetime of wishing and what ifs and, and what if I'd done that and and maybe I should do this and I didn't want that anymore. I wanted to let's do it and see what happens and you know afterwards you know. But uh, you'll never know what happened if if you don't if you don't uh, have a beginning. You'll never know the end. We have about a minute left, Kim. Uh, what okay. if a person acts and nothing happens? You know what? I believe something will happen. I can't say what will happen exactly, but I believe something will. And the only way to determine it is to do something, no matter what it is and how long it takes. Now, it might sometimes you might have to go a different route because it, it took me to go through this route and writing a book and all that to even get to me writing songs and back to the singing. But it took me around in a whirlwind, if you will, but it it. it still comes back to me following my passion, me following my dream, and that dream is of being a singer, singer, uh, songwriter, and, and putting the records out and recording. So, you know, no matter how it takes you, something will happen. You know, I guarantee you that something will happen. I don't know exactly what, but something will happen. And you just never know. And, and like I said, it took me to go through this celebration of Oprah, which took me there to learn more about myself because it was just not about me at that time. It became about others, and I was given to them and being out there for those people, all those people out there and around the world. I was there for them, and that meant more to me than anything because it opened up another side of me that I never knew that was there. So that was really special to me and very important to me and something I learned and something I will never, ever forget for the rest of my life. The title of the book, A Farewell Platform to the Queen of Talk. Yes. True aha moments of divine order. And Kimberly Adams, she is the author. Uh, Kim, tell us how to get your book. How to get my book. You can get my book through Author House uh, website, authorhouse.com. You can get my book on barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and so many other uh, book websites as well. Um, and my website will be up soon, which will be a fair web platform to the queen of talk.com. Thank you, Kim, for being with us on Author Talk. Yes, thank you, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899. 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. 
Patricia's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Patricia expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Darwinian Delusion, Myth of Evolutionism. And the author is Michael Ebifaha. And Michael joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Michael. How are you? Good morning. Well, great. And this is going to be a great discussion because you're a defender of, well, I guess you're not so much a defender of creationism as you are the, uh, as the opponent of Darwinian evolutionism. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. And you're and you're a, 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 a you have a you're a scientist. Uh, you have a PhD in physics. Uh, we'll talk more about your background, but let me read a couple things that you've written about your book. Uh, you say the Darwinian delusion refutes Richard Dawkins' the God delusion on the basis of both science and history, because science cannot explain either the origin of life or the origin of species. Evolutionism is inconsistent with the law of biogenesis. Well, there are many on both. Well, I guess uh, there's uh, many who believe what you call a myth, this Darwinian evolutionism. uh, And we're going to talk about why. But first of all, Michael, tell us about your background. All right. um, I graduated from... uh the University of Toronto, where I obtained my PhD in physics. And uh, I've studied extensively. I also studied in Carleton University, where I got my master's degree. And in Nigeria, I studied for my first degree and also for another master's degree in applied geophysics. And then at U of T, I also completed a Bachelor of Education, and thus I became a teacher and uh, closely following what is going on in the world of science. And also, I also took causes in religion, since uh, the issue of uh, how life began is a very complex one, so it is a multidisciplinary kind of field, and so only being vast in science is not enough. You need to read broadly. So historically, I look into religions in the world, since that is also another way of knowing truth. And uh, also with uh, the science, that puts me in a position to look objectively to the issues without um, living or whatever is important behind. Darwinian evolutionism says that Human evolution, we came from molecules, and over millions, billions of years, whatever it is, we become human from molecules. You say that is a myth. That's complete myth. Yes, and that myth, I'm not just saying it, because science actually has not shown. The evolutionists have not shown even changing one bacteria to something totally different from a bacteria. All what we have is resistant bacteria to a deformed form of bacteria. The changes that would lead to evolutionism are not there for us to see. And those changes are not even seen among us because if science is a fact and science is now, we should be seeing those things happening. But they are not. So that is complete delusion. And to pitch it to millions of years where we will not be, or millions of years past. Those are, well, scientism of the gap, I would say. And that's just more or less to keep the ball rolling. If we want any sciences now, we should see those things going on. Um, But what we see is the same species, Finch to finch, uh, bacteria to bacteria, and that's uh, consistent with uh, evolution science, but that's not evolutionism. Evolutionism 
of course, is that aspect that is beyond uh, science limits. And that's the one that is being debated. Um, evolution and creation are natural processes. They are not at long ahead, no problem with that. But creationism and evolutionism, they are outside science limit, and that's where the beliefs come in. And uh, cannot be a scientific fact because they're just simple worldviews. Why do so many scientists believe in Darwinism? Well, remember we are in a fairly um, secular world, and um, those, those scientists at the time of Darwin definitely opposed what he was doing. There was this philosophical society that uh, published uh, with um, some from the Society of... Uh, London signing against uh, Darwinism. But in the modern world, we have those views because people are fairly skeptical and then uh, looking for other ways of explaining things and then they just come up with that view. And most scientists, of course, go with it. And because most scientists go with it does not prove a point because Things in science that have been overturned are always with few people who oppose it and, and the truth finally come for people to accept the truth. And most people are that uh, under the umbrella of uh, evolutionism. They don't speak out because if they do, they know they will probably be in trouble. And if you look through the Internet, you'll see of uh, professors who have trouble because uh, they feel they have some inclination to creationist view. So the society threatens, and you can see how much they can do. You drag themselves to court. Nobody wants to do that. So even if the fact is actually, the truth, of course, is known. That's why even the public not all by the, uh, the evolutionist argument, because common sense also comes into that. But, well, if you have something to cover up, and that is science, you can use it to propagate what you want to say. That's why we can see the new atheists coming up, thinking that science is in their favor. Um, so the number of scientists believing has nothing to do. The facts speaks for themselves, and that's what my book is all about. You say the origin of life and the correct age of the Earth... Uh, are scientifically indeterminable. You've already talked about this uh, origin of, well, the origin of life uh, is is often tied to this uh, calculation about the Earth's age. And is there any way to determine that? I mean, how, how, could, how could we come up with that which is so beyond comprehension? Well, now, on the question of origin of life, life itself is immaterial. And science has nothing with the immaterial, the, uh, dealing with material things. So it's all speculations and the calculations, of course. The mathematics are not wrong, but the assumptions, since no one is there, they assume things that will favor one uh, worldview, and that's what they do. Creationists look for things that will favor their view. Evolutionists look for things that will favor their view. If they find out short edges, they will discredit it as not uh, right. Uh, they all look for what to support their view. So my well, my argument is, so again, with evolution itself cannot constitute a worldview, being a secondary process. A secondary process cannot know how things began or how things ended, or things end. And I believe surely that uh, life must have been created as uh, the creator has claimed credit for that. And also that is also a creation. Is the both, both of them are products of a mind. Evolution has nothing to do with that. And so talking about the origin of life or the origin of species is uh, completely out of the question. To begin with, nature itself obeys laws. As evolutionists address the origin of nature, of uh, nature, no, they can. But they are just assume nature is nature, but it also obeys laws, and therefore itself is a product of a creation, is a product of a mind. Um, so, in in that sense, uh, evolution, or evolutionists 
cannot address the question of uh, life, and for them to address the question of the origin of species, they have to uh, deal with the aspect of life first. And right now, they have no answers to that. So the question of origin of species is not the the title is definitely wrong. Darwin's title of his book is wrong. Actually, he's talking about diversity, and what has coined the word origin to make it fail. So the question of origin of species is not even addressed in his book, and no scientist has even addressed it. So far, the scientific community has set up an origin of life program which is running and given a million dollars to get the fact that how life can come about. And so far, nobody has come up with that. And if it comes out, it's only be theoretical, and it will not necessarily be the way life started. Scientists are fully aware that the question of the origin of life is uh, completely um, outside their domain. Even if they can create life, that does not mean that's the way life uh, And creating life itself would mean that life then was also created. Uh, the only way they can get life to support their view is if life evolves in the laboratory by force, you know, the other, what that is, of course, we don't think that will come up any day. Why do you say that scientific evidence points to God, who claimed credit for having created the world? Well, um, well, science is built on analogy. And analogy has to be applied under any circumstances. Now, Darwin's theory was built on analogy and Things are similar, therefore they may have. That was the analogy that is going on, and that they proclaim as a fact. Now, if we look at the analogy now, the DNA, of course, was not created by any human being. And we know it's definitely more complex. And so, without science, uh, philosophers, uh, common sense will tell me if something is more sophisticated than what we have built with intelligence and with our minds, then that also must have its own origin from intelligence. And then, that also has to be supported because if we, who are intelligent, can claim credit for what we've done, then it's just logical that whoever created this world should claim credit for what he or she has done. And then if you look into history, there is a claim. And therefore, it points to God, and I fully support uh, Anthony Flew, who, having been 50 years of champion of atheism, when he saw the DNA evidence, he comes to the logical conclusion that any uh, person who is not biased will come to conclude that the evidence of the DNA strictly points to nothing else, unequivocally points to a creator. And that creator must have certain qualities which the Judeo-Christian uh, God has claimed to, to be. His uh, proclamation of his qualities fitting fully well with uh, a being capable of creating life. And uh, we believe that because uh, he's a God of truth. And whoever created should claim credit, and he has. And so those are historical facts. If science can disprove it, and in short, science should... Uh, actually, the evidence actually points to God. That's what I'm saying, and most scientists know for sure that that evidence points to God. Uh, to say that uh, that can come by chance and not being able to prove it, uh, to say any other thing, is not being consistent with the truth, and science is supposed to lead to the truth. So my point is that the evidence unequivocally points to a creator, and that's why I said that uh, life was created, and the DNA is the evidence, and then when you look at the world, we have defined constant, um, those all points, the laws of physics, the laws of maths, they are just not there. <laughs> Random chance cannot produce that. It's a mind that was have worked out all this since laws of biology, and then all the law of uh, biogenesis, which says life can come from only pre-existing life, 
Evidence is the scientists who believe in spontaneous generation, looking at the truth, came out clearly to say that uh, the life must be some from the mind field, not just from random process. And if it is random process, it will be a miracle that things will look designed that way. And science is uh, uh, not supportive of anything that is a miracle. How can something that is random produce mathematical concepts, produce physical concepts, and govern laws in chemistry and all of that? Laws come from a mind. They do not just come up on their own. So from simple common sense, and I think that's the reason most people don't buy into evolution. They will explain everything with the mathematics which people don't understand. But I believe the creator of this world knows fully well that things of this nature will come, and it has, he has given people the ability to think. And if I apply my ability to think, I definitely, and most people will definitely know that the truth, of course, is that life did not come by chance. Life was created as a creator. And why my book is unique is um, Dawkins, uh, Richard Dawkins, will come up and say God is a delusion, but he has not proven God to be a delusion. The only way he can prove God to be a delusion is if there is no evidence of God claiming credit uh, for creating the world. God did that before the ancient Israelites, and it's all documented. And Richard Dawkins also made use of those information because he talked about a Sabbath breaker being stoned to death. And so he is definitely fully aware of that. He would have known that uh, the Sabbath was given as a reason because God said he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, that they call the Sabbath, should be kept holy. And then when somebody was breaking it, for God to confirm the fact that the sixties was just literal in the sense, and to make sure that people would not uh, think he was joking, the fellow was stoned to death, and that was Richard Dawkinson's concern, because he painted God as malicious, but he is not pointing to the fact about creation, because under that Sabbath comes the word creation. So the point is, I had to write a book to point out Richard Duncan's um, um, inconsistency and inability to present the truth. For example, he talks about Einstein being an atheist. Well, I have quoted from the same sources he used to present Einstein as an atheist. Those sources clearly show Einstein denying me an atheist, and rather he was denigrating those that are atheists. He never denigrated the scriptures, and he actually said it would be better to believe in something than to believe in nothing as the atheists do. So my book is to expose those things that just as the truth is not coming out even when he talks about the lives of people, so the truth cannot come out even when he talks about the science, because it's all just fundamentalist thing. Just as we have fundamentalist creationists, so also we have fundamentalist evolutionists who will go to any length to say anything. And uh, we also know what he said in his book, that anybody reading his book at the end would become an atheist, uh, forget about God. So the objectives are known, and therefore my book, I have to write it to counteract the deceiving attitude of uh, most of our leading uh, scientists. We need to come to the fact. We want the truth about origin, and the truth is all what we need, not the preferences or the scientific preferences, that's not what we want. We want the truth. And that's what my book is all about. Well, we've been listening to Michael Ipafaha, and uh, Michael has been explaining it in very detailed ways. Uh, he is the scientist, and he is the teacher, and you can tell that his book, titled The Darwinian Delusion, Myth of Evolutionism. Michael, tell us how to get your book. The book can be... Obtained from the publisher, uh, which is Otto House, 
and then also different um, websites, also at uh, the Amazon and other companies also carry that book. And I have a website which is www.jenningsscience.net. Well, thank you, Michael, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.